Uh, we're starting the book of Colossians today. Uh, if you don't have a Bible with you, the Bible in front of you and the pew can be opened up to page 1043. We're not going to get very far, just the first couple verses, uh, but if there's any questions or, or comments that you have um, throughout the sermon this morning, you can text them to our text number and we'll interact with them a little bit at the end. When we, when we engage God's word, we typically break it up into little sections. We're going to be doing that over the next couple months, breaking Colossians into bite-sized chunks. And in our private reading of the Bible, we, we're blessed. We all own Bibles, most of us, and or multiple copies, and we have them on our phones. And, and so we've just kind of become accustomed to reading bits and pieces of God's Word here and there. Sometimes we, we just break it up into little verses that we find inspirational, and we you know, put them on coffee mugs and things like that. And, and that might be fine as far as it goes. Sometimes it's not, but usually I think it's okay. But the reality is, is that's not how the New Testament letters are supposed to work. The New Testament was written, most of it, as correspondence to churches. And those churches would have gathered on a Sunday, just like we're gathering, and the news would have been brought in that, hey, Paul sent us a letter. And they would have been read. Tim Mackey writes, the New Testament letters were written to be heard, to be listened to by a group of people. And Paul, in, in the letter to the Colossians, he assumes this. He says in Colossians 4.16, after this letter has been read at your gathering, have it read also in the church of the Laodiceans and see that you read the letter from Laodicea. So Paul's assumption in, in, in this letter writing that he's doing is that the church is going to gather and the letter is going to be read. So in order to start off our study in Colossians, that's what we're going to do. Typically, I ask you all to stand uh, as we read God's word. It's a, it's a sign of reverence, change in posture. And I'm going to do that, but I'm going to give you a warning. We're going to read the entire letter to the Colossians this morning. And it takes about nine and a half minutes. And if you get tired of standing, you can sit down. It's okay. So... If you'd like, stand with me as we hear what Paul has to say to the church at Colossae. Paul, an apostle of Christ Jesus, by God's will, and Timothy, our brother, to the saints in Christ at Colossae, who are faithful brothers and sisters, grace to you and peace from God, our Father. We always thank God, the Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, when we pray for you. For we have heard of your faith in Christ Jesus and of the love you have for all the saints because of the hope reserved for you in heaven. You have already heard about this hope in the word of truth, the gospel that has come to you. It is bearing fruit and growing all over the world just as it has among you since the day you heard it and came to truly appreciate God's grace. You learned this from Epaphras, our dearly loved fellow servant. He is a faithful minister of Christ on your behalf and he has told us about your love in the spirit. For this reason also, since the day we heard this, we haven't stopped praying for you, 
We are asking that you may be filled with the knowledge of his will and all wisdom and spiritual understanding so that you may walk worthy of the Lord, fully pleasing to him, bearing fruit in every good work and growing in the knowledge of God, being strengthened with all power according to his glorious might so that you may have great endurance and patience, joyfully giving thanks to the Father who has enabled you to share in the saints' inheritance in the light. He has rescued us from the domain of darkness and transferred us into the kingdom of the son he loves. In him, we have redemption, the forgiveness of sins. He is the image of the invisible God, the firstborn over all creation. For everything was created by him in heaven and on earth, the visible and the invisible, whether thrones or dominions or rulers or authorities, all things have been created through him and for him. He is before all things and by him, all things hold together. He is also the head of the body, the church. He is the beginning, the firstborn from the dead, so that he might come to have first place in everything. For God was pleased to have all his fullness dwell in him and through him to reconcile everything to himself, whether things on earth or things in heaven, by making peace through his blood shed on the cross. Once you were alienated and hostile in your minds, expressed in your evil actions, but now he has reconciled you by his physical body through his death to present you holy, faultless, and blameless before him. If indeed you remain grounded and steadfast in the faith and are not shifted away from the hope of the gospel that you heard. This gospel has been proclaimed in all creation under heaven and I, Paul, have become a servant of it. Now I rejoice in my sufferings for you. And I am completing in my flesh what is lacking in Christ's affliction for his body, that is, the church. I have become its servant according to God's commission that was given to me for you to make the word of God fully known, the mystery hidden for ages and generations, but now revealed to his saints. God wants to make known among the Gentiles the glorious wealth of this mystery, which is Christ in you, the hope of glory. We proclaim him, warning and teaching everyone with all wisdom, so that we may present everyone mature in Christ. I labor for this, striving with his strength that works powerfully in me. For I want you to know how greatly I'm struggling for you and for those in Laodicea and for all who have not seen me in person. I want their hearts to be encouraged and joined together in love so that they may have all the riches of complete understanding and have the knowledge of God's mystery, Christ. In him are hidden all the treasures of wisdom and knowledge." I'm saying this so that no one will deceive you with arguments that sound reasonable, for, it may be, for I may be absent in body, but I am with you in spirit, rejoicing to see how well-ordered you are in the strength of your faith in Christ. So then, just as you have received Christ Jesus as Lord, continue to live in him, being rooted and built up in him and established in the faith, just as you were taught and overflowing with gratitude. Be careful that no one takes you captive through philosophy and empty deceit based on human tradition, based on the elements of the world rather than Christ. For the entire fullness of God's nature dwells bodily in Christ, and you have been filled by him who is the head over every ruler and authority. You were also circumcised in him with a circumcision not done with hands by putting off the body of flesh in the circumcision of Christ when you were buried with him in baptism in which you were also raised with him through faith in the working of God who raised him from the dead. And when you were dead in trespass and in the uncircumcision of your flesh, he made you alive with him and forgave us all our trespasses. He erased the certificate of debt with its obligations that was against us and opposed to us and has taken it away by nailing it to the cross. 
He disarmed the rulers and authorities and disgraced them publicly. He triumphed over them in him. Therefore, don't let anyone judge you in regard to food and drink or in the matter of a festival or a new moon or a Sabbath day. These are a shadow of what was to come. The substance is Christ. Let no one condemn you by delighting in ascetic practices and the worship of angels, claiming access to a visionary realm. Such people are inflated by empty notions of their unspiritual mind. He doesn't hold on to the head from whom the whole body, nourished and held together by its ligaments and tendons, grows with growth from God. If you died with Christ, the elements of this world, why do you live as if you still belong to the world? Why do you submit to regulations? Don't handle, don't taste, don't touch. All these regulations refer to what is destined to perish by being used up. They are human commands and doctrines. Although these have a reputation for wisdom by promoting self-made religion, false humility, and severe treatment of the body, they are not of any value in curbing self-indulgence. So if you've been raised with Christ, seek the things above where Christ is, seated at the right hand of God. Set your minds on things above, not on earthly things, for you died and your life is hidden with Christ in God. When Christ, who is your life, appears, then you also will appear with him in glory. Therefore, put to death what belongs to your earthly nature, sexual immorality, impurity, lust, evil desire, and greed, which is idolatry. Because of these, God's wrath is coming upon the disobedient, and you once walked in these things when you were living in them. But now, put away all the following, anger, wrath, malice, slander, and filthy language from your mouth. Do not lie to one another, since you have put off the old self with its practices and have put on the new self. You are being renewed in knowledge according to the image of your Creator." In Christ, there is not Jew and Greek, circumcision and uncircumcision, barbarian, Scythian, slave and free, but Christ is all and in all. Therefore, as God's chosen ones, holy and dearly loved, put on compassion, kindness, humility, gentleness, and patience, bearing with one another and forgiving one another if anyone has a grievance against another. Just as the Lord has forgiven you, so you are also to forgive. Above all, put on love, which is the perfect bond of unity. And let the peace of Christ, to which you were also called in one body, rule your hearts and be thankful. Let the word of Christ dwell richly among you in all wisdom, teaching and admonishing one another through psalms, hymns, and spiritual songs, singing to God with gratitude in your hearts. And whatever you do in word or in deed, do everything in the name of the Lord Jesus, giving thanks to God the Father through him. Wives, submit yourselves to your husbands as is fitting in the Lord. Husbands, love your wives and don't be bitter toward them. Children, obey your parents in everything, for this pleases the Lord. Fathers, do not exasperate your children so that they won't become discouraged. Slaves, obey your human masters in everything. Don't work only while being watched as people pleasers, but work wholeheartedly fearing the Lord. Whatever you do, do it from the heart as something done for the Lord and not for people knowing that you will receive the reward of an inheritance from the Lord. You serve the Lord Christ, for the wrongdoer will be paid back for whatever wrong he has done, and there is no favoritism. Masters, deal with your slaves justly and fairly, since you know that you too have a master in heaven. Devote yourselves to prayer. Stay alert in it with thanksgiving. At the same time, pray also for us that God may open a door for us for the word to speak the mystery of Christ for which I am in chains so that I may make it known as I should. Act wisely towards outsiders, making the most of the time. Let your speech always be gracious, seasoned with salt so that you may know how you should answer each person. 
Tychicus, our dearly loved brother, faithful minister and fellow servant in the Lord, will tell you all the news about me. I have sent him to you for this very purpose, so that you may know how we are, and so that he may encourage your hearts. He is coming with Onesimus, a faithful and dearly loved brother who is one of you. They will tell you about everything here. Aristarchus, my fellow prisoner, sends you greetings, as does Mark, Barnabas' cousin, concerning whom you have received instructions. If he comes to you, welcome him. And so does Jesus, who is called Justice. These alone of the circumcised are my co-workers for the kingdom of God, and they have been a comfort to me. Epaphras, who is one of you, a servant of Christ Jesus, sends you greetings. He is always wrestling for you in his prayers so that you can stand mature and fully assured in everything God wills. For I testify about him that he worked hard for you, for those in Laodicea and for those in Hierapolis. Luke, the dearly loved physician, and Demas send you greetings. Give my greetings to the brothers and sisters in Laodicea and to Nympha and the church in her home. After this letter has been read at your gathering, have it read also in the church of the Laodiceans, and see that you also read the letter from Laodicea. And tell Archippus, pay attention to the ministry you have received in the Lord so that you can accomplish it. I, Paul, am writing this greeting with my own hand. Remember my chains. Grace be with you. This is the word of the Lord. Who writes letters? Anybody? One? Yeah, okay, a couple people? A few people? Yeah. We have a friend, uh, one of the churches in our covenant community in Grads Pass is, was a uh, instrumental in supporting us when we launched. And we have a friend who's a member of the church there named Jay. And he writes my daughter's letters. And they're the, you know, they're, they're that, that, that stationary in the little envelope. And they come every so often. And my youngest daughter, Nora, she just loses her mind at the idea that somebody sent her something in the mail. And it's handwritten We live in a very different world uh, than even a couple generations ago, right? So most of us write more email than actual letters. Some of us have transitioned away from email to just text messaging for all of our business. I'm not quite there yet. Sounds a, seems a little too intimate for, you know, making restaurant reservations and paying my utility bill. But things have changed in the way we communicate. It used to be that, that people wrote letters all the time. But things have changed even more since the first century when Paul was writing letters. Maybe we envision the Apostle Paul like this. Uh, this uh, Renaissance painting has him sitting at a desk, pouring over his manuscripts. It's, I think he has like a full Bible in the lower corner. I'm not really sure how he got that. Um, but, the, you know, the Renaissance was a weird time. Um, that's not the case. That is not what's happening when Paul writes a letter. And I think it's worthwhile for us to understand a couple things about the first century, the first century and the background of this letter before we get into the particulars of Colossians. So this morning, we're going to take a look at three questions. We're going to ask the question, who wrote this letter? Who was it written to? And what was it written for? So who wrote this letter? I mean, and the easy answer, of course, is Paul, right? Uh, Colossians 1.23, this gospel has been proclaimed in all creation under heaven, and I, Paul, have become a servant of it. 
Paul is the author of this letter. Paul is in prison, we know. He might be in Rome. He might be in prison in Ephesus. There's some debate about that. And he's writing to the church in Colossae, which is a town that he never visited. He's been told about them and some of the things that they're struggling with by one of their leaders, a man named Epaphras. Now, Colossians is what's called a disputed letter. Some of you are more uh, academic and technical in your Bible study, and you'll come across this idea that there are certain uh, Bible scholars that, that think that Paul definitely wrote a few letters, and he maybe wrote a few others, and he probably didn't write some others. And the reason Colossians is called a disputed letter is because of a couple things. The first thing is vocabulary. That there, are some, there are some words in Colossians that Paul uses in Colossians and nowhere else. And I think this is a pretty odd argument to make, and it's been made for about 150 years in the world of biblical scholarship. But it basically says, we have 13 pieces of writing from Paul, and this one's a little different, so Paul must not have written it. Now, think about all of the things you've ever written and the occasions you've had to use words that maybe you don't always use. Would it be fair to say that that one email you sent when you threw in that dictionary.com word of the day, oh, obviously you didn't write that because you don't use those words. See, that's a pretty silly argument, and yet it's one that still has traction in, in some scholarship. The thing that makes it the most silly, I think, is that in this letter, as we read, you may have noticed there's a section that's like bracketed off as a poem. It's called the Christ Hymn, and we'll talk about it in a few weeks when we get there. But um, most of the vocabulary that's strange in this letter comes from that section. And a lot of scholars think that Paul didn't write that, but that it was a poem that early Christians memorized and he just inserted it. And so it wasn't really his language. It was the community's language. The other reason that this is a disputed letter is because a lot of people think that what Paul is arguing against is a philosophy called Gnosticism. Now, again, we'll talk a little bit about this as we go, but, but Gnosticism is a, started out as a uh, sect of Christianity, and they, they took some, some Christian teaching and some other groups' teaching, and they kind of mixed them together. And I, I want to sh share a fairly lengthy quote from N.T. Wright describing what Gnosticism is, and I'm not going to use a British accent, but if you can imagine it in one, that would be best. The world we live in of space, time, and matter is basically a bad place. And it was made by a bad or incompetent or malevolent God. And we are trapped within this bad world. And we, or at least some of us, are actually sparks of light. Or somewhere within our nasty mortal body, there is a spark of light which has got trapped there. And which is longing to escape and go off into the world of pure spirit. Where it will be free and happy and whole again. Set free from this nasty mortal world. And that the way we get that freedom is through acquiring this knowledge, this gnosis, which is a knowledge about the true God, who is the high God, who didn't really have anything much to do with the making of the world, because that was a silly, secondary, shabby thing to do. And this true God, who really doesn't like materiality at all, physicality, wants to get in touch with this divinity that's already inside you. So this, in a nutshell, is Gnosticism, that the material world is bad, and there's this higher spiritual world that can only be accessed by special knowledge. 
And scholars for a long time have thought that Paul is fighting against Gnosticism in Colossians. But the problem with that is Gnosticism as a worldview really came into full strength around the second century, about 100 years after Paul was alive. And so, again, these scholars would say, well, obviously Paul didn't write Colossians. Somebody pretending to be Paul did. Now, I don't think that's true. I think Paul did actually write Colossians for a number of reasons. And we're going to take a look at why there's a better explanation than second century Gnosticism in a minute. So I'm going to, I'm going to lean out there and say, who wrote this letter? Paul did. But that's not really the only answer. Look at Colossians 1.1. Paul, an apostle of Christ Jesus by God's will, and Timothy, our brother. Now, it's, it's possible that Paul is just being a nice guy and saying, hey, Timothy's here too. But if, if you recall the end of the letter, there's a lot of other guys with Paul. They don't get called out at the beginning. See, based on what historians know about how letters were generally written in the first century, it's more likely that Timothy actually played a role in writing the letter. In the ancient world, co-senders were usually those people that helped the main author craft the content of the document. And we see Paul doing this all the time. In 1 Corinthians, we read Paul called as an apostle of Christ, Jesus, by God's will, and Sosthenes, our brother. 2 Corinthians, Paul, an apostle of Christ, Jesus, by God's will, and Timothy, our brother. Galatians, Paul, an apostle, not from men or by man, but by Jesus Christ and God the Father who raised him from the dead, and all the brothers who are with me. Philippians says Paul and Timothy, servants of Christ Jesus. And 1 Thessalonians says Paul, Silvanus, and Timothy. As biblical historians search back through the ancient Roman world and, and learn about letter writing, it becomes fairly clear that Paul's letters are carefully crafted documents built over a short period of time in a community of people. We saw in that picture, Paul in his study at his Western desk writing his letters. That's not what's going on. Paul is in prison. He's being visited by Timothy. And Epaphras comes to visit to give a report on the Colossian church. And they decide, okay, we need to write a letter. And so he and Timothy systematically assemble a document, probably with multiple drafts, to be delivered to the Colossians. And, uh, th and maybe that's, that sounds odd to you because we tend to have an idea of the inspiration of Scripture that's kind of like a weird brain dump. Like Paul's just sitting there and his eyes like roll into the back of his head and the Holy Spirit falls upon him and he grabs a quill and he just starts writing. And 10 minutes later, he's got this letter that says to the Colossians and he goes, oh, I guess this must be a letter for the Colossians. But that's not how the Bible works. That's not how it came to us. It is authoritative. It is inspired. God carried along the authors of scripture to the place that he wanted them to go, but he ends up doing it in really human ways. We have to remember that the Bible is a divine book, but it's also a human book. And that doesn't mean it's flawed, but it does mean it's in a lot of ways kind of normal. And this is going to be important as we talk about the content of the book, because there are people in Colossae that are saying the material world, the normal world, the everyday world is bad. And there's this higher spiritual life that can only be discovered by 
going into a trance and being, and, and delivering, being delivered divine knowledge. And even in the very way that Paul communicates, he shows that actually God is doing it differently. God is communicating to Paul and his crew about the Colossians in very normal ways. So we have Paul, the main author of Colossians, the, the named author. We also have Timothy, who's helping out. But then we have Paul's secretary. We know that Paul has a secretary because in Colossians 4.18, Paul says, I, Paul, am writing this greeting with my own hand. Remember my chains. Grace be with you. If Paul is writing Colossians 4.18 with his own hand, the assumption is that he hasn't written the rest of the letter with his own hand. Paul didn't write physically most of this letter. Someone else wrote it for him. Maybe it was Timothy in this case. We don't know. In the book of Romans, we find out, Romans 16.22 says, I, Tertius, who wrote this letter, greet you in the Lord. So the letter to the church at Rome was physically written by a man named Tertius while Paul dictated. And in the first century, you would most likely hire a trained professional scribe to write your letters for you. Because paper is expensive, ink is expensive. Language is challenging. Could Paul have written the letter by himself? Possibly. But more often than not, he's bringing someone in to help craft the letter. And then the fourth person, we want to take a look at is Paul's letter carrier. Colossians 4.7 says, Tychicus, our dearly beloved brother, faithful minister, and fellow servant in the Lord, will tell you all the news about me. We get the impression that Tychicus is the one that Paul is sending with the letter to the church at Colossae. And the letter carrier was most often the person who had been instructed by the author and commissioned to read the letter out loud, just like we did a few minutes ago and then potentially answer questions about the content of the message. If Tychicus gets to Colossae on a, on a Sunday morning and he reads the letter out loud to the congregation and there's questions, who's going to answer the questions? Well, Tychicus, because he was there while Paul was writing the letter. And if anybody knows anything about how to understand it, it would be him. So who was this letter written to? Colossians 1, 2, to the saints in Christ at Colossae who are faithful brothers and sisters, grace to you and peace from God our Father. So it's pretty easy to understand that there is a church that meets in the city of Colossae that this has been written to. And I've got a couple of maps for you. This first map is, uh, this is the Mediterranean. You can kind of see the Eastern Mediterranean. Israel is over there. And that red rectangle, that's where Colossae is. It's in Turkey. We'll go to the next one. This is a zoomed-in view of Colossae and Laodicea and Hierapolis. They're little sister cities, kind of like Pasco and Kennewick and Richland. And they straddle this river called the Lycus River. And we saw at the end of the book, Paul even mentions Laodicea and Hierapolis because they all kind of work together in ministry. Colossae was a fairly small town. Uh, it had been a major trading center about 500 years earlier, but it had fallen um, out of favor because Laodicea got a really important road, and Laodicea became a much more important city. Colossae was destroyed in an earthquake in the year 61. 
And uh, currently, it's an unexcavated ruin. If you go there now, it's just a big pile of dirt. They've never dug it up. But Paul decides to send a letter there because he knew some people that lived there. He knew Epaphras. He knew Nympha and Laodicea. He knew a couple other people. And it was important to him to communicate the gospel and help them work through some problems they were having. So who does he write to at Colossae? We read in verse two again, he writes to the saints in Christ. And this is, this is one of the unfortunate things about our English translations is we use the word saint. And the, the word in Greek is the word holy ones. Saint isn't super helpful for a couple reasons. In our context, usually if you think of a saint... You either think of somebody who's just a really good person, like, wow, they're such a saint. Or you think of maybe the history of of Christian saints, maybe in the Catholic tradition or the Orthodox tradition, or, or even just in some of the Protestant churches that talk more about the saints. We just got done celebrating St. Patrick's Day one of the saints of the church, a Christian man who went to Ireland as a missionary and brought people the gospel. And we think about saints and we think about people who have devoted their lives in special ways to the work of Jesus and have, uh, have uh, given, you know, made vows of poverty and, and scorned a normal life. And that's fine. Those are really good stories. And I think we should spend time learning about that category of people that we would call saints. But the reality for us this morning is that all the Christians in Colossae are saints. All the Christians in Colossae are saints. Paul's not writing to a select group of three or four people that are really good at fasting. He's writing to the whole church. And this is the language that the New Testament chooses when it talks about you. Christian. See, if you're a follower of Jesus today, if you have repented from sin and chosen to follow Christ, your identity is not as a sinner. We read in a couple chapters from now that you were dead in your trespasses and sins, but you are no longer. And yes, we, we still struggle with sin. And yes, we're called to repent. Martin Luther says, when our Lord and Master Jesus Christ said, repent, He willed the entire life of believers to be one of repentance. And we should be people that are constantly evaluating ourselves, asking the Spirit of God to illuminate our hearts and show us where we have sinned, where we've fallen short, and confess that and repent from that. But today, if you are a Christian, your identity is not found in your sin. It is found in Christ. And in Christ, Paul says, you are a saint. The other reason saint isn't the greatest translation is because the word holy one would have triggered the minds of those men and women in Colossae who knew the Old Testament in Greek. They would have studied the Greek Old Testament and over 20 times the word holy ones is used to talk about the council of heavenly beings that surround the throne of God. If you've been with us when we were studying Genesis, you know that that God is the greatest being in existence, right? He is the one and only creator, 
but there are all these other spiritual beings that exist in the world just outside of our vision. And many of them work for God in his divine counsel, in his heavenly court. Psalm 89.5, we read, Lord, the heavens praise your wonders, your faithfulness also in the assembly of the holy ones. That word for assembly there is the word ecclesia. If you're familiar with that word, it's because it's the word for church. Psalm 89.5 says that the heavens praise your wonders in the church of the saints. See, Paul, in calling the Colossian saints, is making a connection between Yahweh's heavenly people and his earthly people. He's giving us a hint of a day when heaven and earth will be one again. And you will have a place in his kingdom alongside a myriad of spiritual beings that live in his presence in heaven already. Why is this important? Because sometimes I think we, we imagine the gospel ending at the cross. But if the gospel ends at the cross, then there's not really any good news. Luke 24, we read, the things concerning Jesus of Nazareth who was a prophet, powerful in action and speech before God and all the people, and how our chief priests and leaders handed him over to be sentenced to death, and they crucified him. But we were hoping that he was the one who was about to redeem Israel. The two men on the road to Emmaus telling Jesus, who they don't know is Jesus, what's been going on in the city. And it's kind of a bummer, right? Man, we thought this guy was going to save us. We thought he was the Messiah. We thought he was the king, but they killed him. See, the gospel becomes good news for us when Jesus rises from the dead. And only then is the cross the place where our sin is forgiven. Jesus died to pay the penalty for our sin, but he rose from the dead to give us new life. Romans 6, we read, but now since you've been set free from sin and have been Come enslaved to God. You have your fruit, which results in sanctification, and the outcome is eternal life. Eternal life, in some sense, is, is living forever, but it's ultimately becoming like Christ. This is the end goal for us as Christians. Peter says it this way in 2 Peter, his divine power has given us everything required for life and godliness through the knowledge of him who called us by his own glory and goodness. By these, he has given us very great and precious promises so that through them, you may share in the divine nature, escaping the corruption that is in the world because of evil desire. This is what theologians will call glorification or deification. In the Eastern church, they call it theosis. Mike Heiser says it this way, we are made fit to occupy sacred space with God's supernatural family that's already there. So church this morning, if, if we are saints, like Paul says we are, we are on a trajectory towards holiness. We are on a trajectory towards moral perfection because Christ in us is transforming us into his image. The reality that you are on a trajectory towards Christ-likeness should inform everything that you do, how you treat people, how you entertain yourself, how you spend your money, how you approach God. 
You have been saved from sin and death, pulled from the pit by the work of Christ on the cross, but you've also been raised up with him and seated with him in the heavens in Christ Jesus. And you are a holy one. You are a saint. And this is good news for most of us this morning. Those of us who have bowed our knee to Jesus, pledged our allegiance to Christ, turned from sin and toward Jesus. But maybe that's not you this morning. Maybe these promises, they don't apply to you. This glorious reality isn't something you can claim because you are not in Christ. And so I would invite you, if that's you, to give your allegiance to Jesus, place your trust in Christ to forgive you of your sins and submit to him as the resurrected king of creation. To become one of the holy ones that this letter is written to. So Paul writes to the church at Colossae. So what's he writing about? I mentioned a little bit earlier that the church is struggling with some things. There's some false teaching that is gaining acceptance in the church. It's this kind of mysticism, this desire to flee physical life and to pursue a higher spiritual secret knowledge. I'm going to use some of Mike Heiser's work in this next piece. One of the things that he pointed out to me was that in the 19th century, in the 1800s, Bible scholars started thinking about Colossians and decided that Paul couldn't have written it because it was about Gnosticism. I mentioned that earlier. And we, we knew that Gnosticism didn't come to the fore until the second century, so it was outside the life of Paul. But then in 1946, something called the Dead Sea Scrolls were found. This is a massive deposit of ancient documents in the desert in Israel from a place called Qumran. And they spanned right around the time of Jesus, a little bit before and a little bit after. And in many of these documents, they found things like speculation about angels. Who are they? How many of them are they? What do they do? Who's the most powerful one? Having heavenly visions of God's throne. Special teachers that, that got access to the heavenly realm because of their special knowledge. And all of this predates Paul, and all of this predates Gnosticism. It's a kind of Jewish mysticism that we didn't know existed in the 19th century. These Jewish mystics argued about which spiritual beings are more powerful and how their hierarchies work. And when you recognize that this kind of mystic thought was alive and well during Paul's day, and then you read Colossians where he starts talking about having visionary experiences and connecting with angels and principalities and powers and all of these things, it's easy to recognize that, oh yeah, Paul totally could have written this letter because all of that was bubbling around in the ancient world. So the church at Colossae is probably primarily Gentile, non-Jews, but there's also a lot of Jewish people in Colossae. So what Epaphras reports to Paul is that, you know, Paul, your gospel is being believed, 
But there's also some weird pagan stuff going on. And there's some weird Jewish mysticism about angels and visions, and it's all getting mixed up together in the church. The way N.T. Wright explains it is this. He says, on the whole, syncretism, the blending of different religious beliefs and practices seems to have been the prevailing approach to religion in Colossae. Syncretism, taking, taking a little bit of the Christian faith, a little bit of Buddha, whatever floats by your Instagram each week, maybe some Jedi, mix it all together. See, it's helpful that this is what Paul is talking about because we live in the exact same kind of culture, don't we? Where people just feel like, you know, whatever works, whatever feels right, whatever makes me smile, I'll just add a little bit of that and mix it up together. And I don't like this part of Christianity, so I'm going to get rid of that and and I'll add it back in this other part of Islam or Hinduism or, or just new age weird stuff that I learned at yoga. It's not a dig against yoga. I'm just, <laughs> and we meet these people, right? Maybe you're one of these people that just kind of has a, a buffet-style religion. And so Paul's going to speak to that as we go through this book. And the primary way that he speaks to the issue of this syncretism, this religious buffet is with the most concentrated, powerful examination of who Jesus is in the entire New Testament. John Calvin writes, this epistle, to express it in one word, distinguishes the true Christ from a fictitious one. The question, who is Jesus, might be the most important question you and I ever have to answer. And then the follow-up question would be, So what? This is what Colossians is about. And this isn't just a theological study either. We're going to start this book with some pretty big ideas that we're going to have to grapple with. Paul's going to take us kind of to the highest heavens in his praise of who Jesus is. But then he's going to bring us down into the everyday life of husbands and wives, children, masters, slaves, and society. Scott McKnight says, a public reading of the things said in Colossians is a forthright social, economic, and political announcement that King Jesus rules the cosmos. So that's where we are going in this book over the next several months. We're going to week after week, take a look at a different facet of who Jesus is, how he is the center of the world, and how understanding who he is affects and shapes everything about who we are. So, as we we close this morning. We're going to take communion. In in Colossians, we read that a warning against festivals and new moons and Sabbaths being a, a shadow of what was to come. 
Paul said the substance is Christ. And, and I've, I've mentioned this to you before, but Jesus takes a Jewish festival, the festival of Passover, and he repurposes it to make it about him. The substance of that festival is Jesus. And we take the bread, which represents his body, and the cup, which represents his blood, and, and we receive nourishment by them. We remember his death on our behalf until the day that he returns. Paul writes in Colossians 3, 4, when Christ, who is your life, appears, then you will also appear with him in glory. So I'd encourage you as we sing to take the bread and the cup and reflect on the place that Jesus has in your life. Is he the centerpiece of your life? Ask the Holy Spirit to speak and reveal the areas of your heart where you've taken him out of the center and take communion when you're ready. Additionally, if you want to spend some time in prayer as we sing, the prayer rugs are available. I've said this before, but sometimes getting out of your seat and coming down and kneeling at the front is, is a way that changes the posture of your body and is helpful in changing the posture of your heart. So feel free to use those spaces if you'd like. You've been listening to the Revelation Church Coeur d'Alene podcast. Learn more about Revelation Church at revelationcda.com.